and welcome to the latest episode of Film by Numbers from Outward Film Network. We are the film podcast in which the topic of discussion is dictated by the number of the episode. Thank you to those who have listened to all of our episodes thus far, or even just some of our episodes. We're on all the main podcast providers, including Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. And episode zero is now on our YouTube channel, along with many other videos. Just search Outward Film Network on YouTube. My name is Phil Slatter, and I'm joined by Dave Woods. Evening, David. Evening, Phil, but you expect me to talk? Little clue as to what the episode is going to be there. And we have, uh, making his debut in the pod, the founder of Outward Film Network and filmmaker, Mr. Matthew Simmons. Evening, Matt. Hello, hello. Welcome to uh, your debut on the pod. Lots Thank to you. discuss tonight. Now, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and as I mentioned, our YouTube channel. Uh, our website is outwardfilmnetwork.com and do check out our back catalogues, episode 06. Now, as Dave has alluded to, this is episode number seven and the theme is 007 James Bond. Twenty twenty two was the sixtieth anniversary year of the Bond films, as well as the conclusion of Daniel Craig's stint as the iconic super spy. As we wait to find out who the next Bond will be and what form Bond will take in the future, there is much to discuss, and there is an even entire series podcast called The A to Z of James Bond. We'll be discussing the extraordinary longevity of the franchise, the source material of Ian Fleming's novels, and how they have been translated into cinema, the politics of Bond, the different actors and accompanying eras portraying the world's most famous secret agent, and all the gadgets, girls and villains, whilst not forgetting the legendary Bond themes. Now, I was born in 1984, so it wasn't really until the mid-90s that I started watching Bond films, initially through the eyes of my older brother, who's uh, three years older than me, and he was a bit, into more, a bit more into them than I was, probably because of his age. I always saw them as uh, Sean Connery and Roger Moore, and the other three kind of felt to me as less they weren't quite part of the franchise. They felt like separate to the main runs of Bond, if you see what I mean. Goldeneye was the first Bond that I saw at the cinema, and I think I've seen all of the films on the big screen since then. I can't pretend to be an expert or a diehard fan, but I do obviously uh, enjoy the, film, the films, in particular the later ones. Um, Matt, starting with you, what does Bond mean to you and how did you first encounter it? Um, I don't remember the age, the specific age, but I remember it being during a Christmas break uh, during the 90s and uh, it was Live and Let Die was on during a Christmas break and it was one of those memories where it's it's clear, the memory's clear of, of experiencing uh, Bond for the first time and specifically Live and Let Die and it was great. Um, I think uh, for most people, uh, in any introduction to Bond is going to be during the holidays. And, you know, in addition to like the Christmas holidays, there's also the Easter um, bank holidays. And again, I've got fresh memories of uh, Live and Let Die during uh, Easter holidays. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, it's very much associated with those kind of holiday periods um, during my younger years. And it was great escapism, I suppose. And they've become a sort of staple of Chris of Christmas, haven't they? In, in an odd way, I guess, because sort of older families could could sit and watch them together. I mean, Dave, what did Bond mean to you, and how did you first come across it? It's pretty similar to Matt, and uh, of course, Matt and I are huge Bond fans, and um, <laughs> we seem to have come about it in the same way. In that, well, for me, it was the Easter holidays, as Matt mentioned. Uh, is always a good time to discover them, and. I think Live and Let Die as well would be 
a very it certainly um caught my imagination first i think um and i'll go into that a little bit later i think but um it's it seems to be almost um a mixture of various clips from different bond films from the moore and connery eras particularly roger moore i remember his most distinctly from kind of quite young i think maybe even just before as a teenager um and I think it's grown into just becoming the collection of films or the film franchise that most embodies entertainment and fun for me in cinema. Uh, I think I've kind of associated that lighthearted tone of the Roger Moore era to be the spirit of Bond, and that naturally discredits the serious element of Ian Fleming's original novels, which I haven't read, but I understand to be more spy thrillers. Um, but nonetheless, I go into a Bond film looking to have a good time more than I would with any other film because even the weaker elements of Bond films are in many ways part of the experience and part of that holiday feeling. I suppose in, in some respects they they do kind of merge into one, the earlier ones, as you alluded to. Yeah. I mean, I think there are Bonds that I haven't seen all the way through, but I've certainly seen clips of some of them. So you almost like wonder whether you've actually seen them all the way through if you can't distinctly remember putting them on and watching them from beginning to end. You know, I've yeah, I've always bit. found that. Where was that mm-hmm. from? Um that's certainly my case because I, I can't pretend to, to say that I've seen every single one. But as you mentioned, I mean, the character of James Bond first appeared in Ian Fleming's novel Casino Royale, which has been adapted twice, first as a parody and then as the more serious recent version that's better known. Initially, the films were very much based on the books, as we know. And then in later years, they would come, the character would remain and elements would remain, of course, but the stories were original before returning to the roots of the character Fleming wrote 12 novels and two collections of short stories about Bond um, how do you think the books read now have you read any of them and um, do you think they bear any relation to the films well I never have I always wish I had I'd always intended to but um, I remember hearing about how the books were a lot harsher in tone and problematic um, uh, to be quite explicit a bit of a warning i guess but um in the book of goldfinger i think we all remember the scene where bond meets pussy galore in the barn um in the film but i think in the book bond actually rapes pussy galore so that always made me think well that's it's not what i got in you know i don't want to know about that and it wasn't something i wanted to read so maybe that put me off yeah i don't know matt's read casino royale i know so yeah matt how do you find the books in comparison to the film and also how how do you think bond is interpreted by the actor and is there a, an actor who gets him best it's quite a difficult one to kind of answer that question having only read casino royale because casino royale the novel and the film are very similar and it, it reading the novel you are able to kind of refer back to the film of Daniel Craig, not the other one. And it's crazy how similar they are. Now, had I read another uh, of his books, then there might have been some actual comparison there because the other books do differ. Um, The thing is with Casino Royale as well is that for for Fleming, it was a blank canvas. And Casino Royale was introducing a character that people weren't aware of. Whereas as the books went on and it became more popular, he was writing with an audience in mind. Whereas the Casino Rail book, it's kind of, it allows maybe for a bit more of, uh, I could be wrong, but a bit more maturity maybe. 
um, in the sense that you've got a character who's very um, hard edged, but during the latter half of the book, you know, it's a romance story. It, it's kind of finding love and it's settling down. Um, and there's also some philosophical elements to it as well, talking about, um, you know, kind of good and evil. So there's these elements where you feel like maybe you could get them into Casino World because there wasn't any kind of expectation. Um, so maybe he was able to explore more layers uh, to the character. And I can't, I can't speak for the other novels, but for Casino Royale, it's very much... Um, if you've seen the film, then you're not going to get anything new from the novel. Yes, there are some parts where he refers to female characters in a very kind of rough way. Um, but yes, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a good read. It's worth reading. But I would suggest try to aim to kind of read more than just Casino Royale just to get a, a better idea of uh, how the books compare. Well, one thing I'd read about the books, and this actually alludes to one of Fleming's short stories, which is The Living Daylights, which became one of Timothy Dalton's entries into the franchise. The, the short story was, I think, quite uh, quite tight, quite uh, very far away after the first 15 minutes of the film from the film's narrative. And it was more of a cat and mouse thriller, Hunter and Hunted. Uh, a lot of people say it was Fleming's best writing in the series, but the film departed from the short story, The Source, quite dramatically. I think Moonraker, another one, is, is a book yes, that is very yes. different to the film as well. Yeah, yes, as I understand, as I understand that. it, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting about it being a blank canvas for Casino Royale when Fleming first wrote it because when they wanted to really strip back and go to the roots of the character, that's exactly what they did. So they said, right, let's go right back to the start with that first book and completely start afresh. And they stripped away uh, Q. He's not in the um, original. And, and they, some of the more better known elements of Bond were were removed, the ones that come into the franchise through the films and perhaps through the later books. And then as the Daniel Craig films moved on, we saw those being reintroduced. So interesting perspective the only bond book i've read is actually devil may care which was written by sebastian folks who's a fantastic writer who wrote charlotte gray bird song a week in december and a few other um, well-received books uh that was published more recently because there are more than just the 12 novels and two collections of short stories we've alluded to with bond in them there's many more that are still being released there's young james bond as well and devil may care was quite an entertaining book but it did feel considering it came out in the I guess I think it was the early 2000s it already felt like it was an older Bond story in the modern day so maybe something that we're going to allude to later tapping into the Pierce Brosnan characters and the idea of him being a bit old-fashioned and the stories being a bit old-fashioned and a sort of evil villain that wants to take over the world was something that the films in later years tried to ease out ease away from um, we talked a bit about the politics of Bond. You've mentioned about Pussy Galore and how that was changed from the book to the film. Um, so already at that point, they were realising it was it wouldn't work on film. And now you look back and that is problematic, definitely, the politics of that film. Are they problematic or are they sensationalised? I mean, Roger Moore said Bond was escapism, but not meant to be imitated in real life. So what are your feelings from that regard? Well, uh, yeah, quite so. Um, it is escapism. Um, and there is a lot of fervour surrounding attempts to modernise Bond. Uh, and whether intentionally or unintentionally, I think this does rob the franchise of what well, is a very simple aim to provide spectacle, adventure and romance. But 
you know, I think we can all admit they are based on male fantasies. Um, men want to be tough, bold, rugged and strong and play with cool gadgets and globe hop about enjoying a few drinks and having a personal expense account courtesy of the government while finding romance along the way. And I think that's okay. It's, 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 it's good fun. Um, but as you rightly said, Phil, it's, there's, there are problems. You certainly look at some of the early Connery films. Uh, well, in fact, all of the Connery films and it really does carry on throughout it. Even, even in the Timothy Dalton films, the Brosnan films, even the Craig films, there is, a rampant misogyny which goes beyond Bond as a character. I mean, it's an important note that Bond is a misogynist and should be portrayed in this way if the intention is to capture the character authentically, the literary character. But you could argue the films do indulge um, a male gaze and objectify women rather than explore their characters in, in their own right. I would say this extends to all other Bonds to some degree, but except for Daniel Craig, who I think it's more about Bond as a misogynist. So perhaps the question we have now is whether Fleming's novels remain a relevant source if the franchise is to be modernised and progress. I suppose that there's that scene at the start of Living Daylights has just um, come to me, obviously the Timothy Dalton one, when you have the pre-credit sequence and then there's a woman lying on a boat just moaning about how there's no proper men at her club and then Bond just lands and takes the phone off her, she'll call you back, gets rid of his parachute and I'll, I'll head back to base in an hour. And it's quite a realistic like, oh, scene, though, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, I think just, we've all had a day like that. One. I mean, it's it's. I think it's an intentionally ridiculously funny scene. Uh, almost, I would agree. Yeah, I know the almost scene, the parody. Yeah. But I mean, is, is the film is the film being sexist in that regard, or is or is it just a bit of a something a bit frivolous, frivolous, and a bit bit amusing? That's just one scene, I guess, but. Mm. It it just becomes part of the the, the Bond genre, doesn't it? Like it, it, these kind of moments, you can highlight them, but in reality, if you kind of talk about just conventions of genre, it a, a, for a long period you needed these moments in Bond films, and it was almost it, it doesn't matter whether it's something that is questionable or it's Bond with a gadget. These were all conventions that were, you know, were. Well, it had to be in the script because the producers felt like, well, there's pressure on us to give the fans what they want. And the producers, you know, for one reason or another, assumed, well, this is what the fans want. And it, it's well, I think, thinking, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it's this, the, this, there's a ton of scenes that we can analyze. But mm -hmm. I, I've got a feeling the producers were very much kind of, as you say there, it was more of a box ticking exercise. I mean, on on that subject, we've seen in more recent bonds, we've had a, a female 007, uh, spoiler warning slightly for No Time to Die. And we've seen the female characters be more than just, if you want eye candy, they've actually served purpose into the plot. So we've seen it moving forward in modern day. And with it being rooted as a fairly misogynistic character, does Bond have a future other than as a money-making franchise? Or is the character resigned to an earlier era? I mean, can the films progress with a different more modern sensibility we've seen them do that i don't want to say try to do that but we've seen them do it with daniel craig but at times it has felt like it with the more recent daniel craig films where they've been regressing slightly more modern sensibility or should the producers consider bond a period piece is there any way for it to go from where we are now well i i, I think it is that choice i think you either keep 
you explore Bond as a misogynistic character, which I think in a very modern telling of a secret agent would be possibly too problematic and maybe not realistic, or you preserve that character in a period drama. In my opinion, James Bond can't exist as an authentic character outside of this Cold War era that Fleming created. Um, you know, the books are written in, what, the 50s, I think it was, and um, Fleming was a naval intelligence officer. He, he's he's written from that period and that the politics of that time. And I, I could even reference Daniel Craig's portrayal as showing the exact problems of trying to mesh the two, trying to modernise but keep Bond as Bond. You know, there's so many jokes in that, in, in that era about Bond being outdated and old. Um, and then they just confuse the message when he's 50 and he's seducing women young enough to be his daughters. Um, and if Bond as a misogynist is politically taboo, which it shouldn't be because stories should be told as they are and not sanitised for public opinion, that moves towards censorship and art should challenge. Bond's got art in it, even as entertainment. It's made with craft and ideas and a concept. Um, then you could move it into a area where 007 is a series and it's a catch-all code for a new direction where you could have actors from all kinds of different backgrounds, uh, different genders playing a Bond type. But James Bond is set in a very particular time and that, and it, again, if we're talking about the literary character. Um, so I think you've got the question of how you interpret that. But Matt, it's not, it's not just about the character, it's also about the setting and the idea of there being one spy fighting against an evil villain. It's something that, or an evil empire, such as you know the, the Soviet Union that we had in, with the Connery and the Moore versions. What we have nowadays, what I felt the, the Craig films did well to a point was address the fact that enemies weren't countries. And there was a, a really good speech by Judy Dench's M in Skyfall saying exactly that. And Casino Royale mentions 9-11, but it does feel that in this day and age, they've almost tried, especially with Spectre, there was all the talk about modern espionage and how Bond was a dinosaur. Uh, and then they were also trying to argue, counter that by saying that at the same time, you do need these modern spies. But I guess spying has completely changed. And I know Bond's a fantasy and it's fictional, but in this day and age, do the stories of Bond really fit our modern times? It's a good question, isn't it? Um, I really like the idea of a period piece. I think that would be fantastic. Like the moment you said that, I've not actually thought about it before, but the moment you said it, I thought of uh, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. And you mm. kind of, you look at that kind of environment, it would be great to see this franchise go in that direction not obviously that you don't have much longevity there but yeah it, it's a world that we we don't know so it it's all, all we can kind of do really is is again it's just you look at what hollywood gives us in terms of um showing the realities of the world and as you say there the the enemy has to constantly change because you don't want to focus on one corner of the world because then it becomes a bit too um offensive so it constantly is changing from wealth to politics um so yeah it, it's it's a good question and i think the answer is uh there's probably a reason why we, we might not get another one for about another five years because they need to figure that out in in some respects though we we sort of do have these characters in modern day society that 
almost fit the mold of being a Bond villain. Um, if you think of someone like Elon Musk and then you think of Drax in Moonraker trying to colonize another planet, I mean, that's there's a connection there. So maybe there's something that could be done there. And I'm, I'm not saying that Elon Musk is a Bond villain per se or is evil. You know, Maybe he was inspired opinions. by Bond. You never know. Uh, yeah. Um, but people, I mean, people have their own opinions, but something like that. And we, we do talk about these, you know, billionaires that don't pay enough tax or the, the, the wealthy 1%. So there's an area there that could be explored that would fit into the older Bonds in many respects. It, 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 who do you think uh, Bond should take on in the next 10 years? Like who, who, do, who is the, that's kind of laying the, uh, foundations to, to become a stereotypical bond villain i think there's quite a clear answer to that question premier league football chairman <laughs> yeah. um currently what's going on in the world um but well back to russia yeah, again then <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so we've gone full circle there haven't we yeah. um well, well you could again argue with the the iron curtain going back up as it was but certainly it's certainly closer than it has been over the past sort of 30 years. Maybe there is, from a story perspective, something that you could do with Bond there. Yeah, and no, I mean, Bond's always been very reactionary. We mentioned Moonraker earlier. It was a reaction to Star Wars, which was coming out and was obviously wildly popular at around, I think, a year or two before Moonraker was released. And they did adapt the, you know, apparently allegedly better novel um, to fit more with that audience. Um, equally, at the time of making the Connery films, the Cold War was still kind of in the in the in the in the ethos, and you know there was still a lot of tension there, and um, there was a yeah, you saw a lot of the politics react to that, and I think you've seen that in the Craig era with um, societal changes, and that that's definitely been reflected on screen as well. Oh. Suivi. Say Suivi. The house will cover the difference. Yeah, madame. Oui, monsieur. Change s'il vous plaît. Carte. Carte. Neuf à la banque. I need Carte. another thousand. I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Now we're going to look at each individual Bond, starting, of course, with the Sean Connery era, which lasted from 1962 to 1971, although he did return the 1983 Talia film production distributed by Warner Brothers instead of United Artists with Never Say Never Again. It started with Doctor No in 1962, uh, From Rush With Love was 1963, Goldfinger in 64, Thunderball in 65, You Only Live Twice was 67, and then Diamonds Are Forever in 1971. Producers Albert R. Cubby Broccoli and Harry Zaltzman won the rights to Ian Fleming's Bond novels and envisaged a franchise, initially casting Cary Grant as Bond. Grant would only commit to one film and was 50 years old at the time, so Broccoli and Zaltzman continued their search for a Bond. Fleming wanted Richard Todd, who was in The Dam Busters, but Broccoli and Zaltzman didn't agree. David Niven was considered but rejected, as was a young Roger Moore, although Broccoli considered him too young and perhaps a shade too pretty. Moore denied that he was offered the role at this point. Broccoli's wife, Dana, persuaded Cubby to give Connery a chance. Fleming didn't like Connery at the time, snootily referring to him as the working class Scot and an overgrown stuntman, while Saltzman and Broccoli were initially unimpressed when Connery turned up looking dishevelled at an introductory lunch. But his confidence and assertiveness won them over, 
and when he walked back to his car, he moved, Salksman recalled, like a jungle cat. Now, director Terence Young, who directed Dr. No, took Connery under his wing and taught him how to B-bond. He was fitted for suits by his tailor, and he took him to his personal hairdresser. Fleming was convinced by Connery after seeing the premiere of Dr. No. In fact, he was so won over by the performance that in his next but one 007 novel, You Only Live Twice, Fleming gave the character of James Bond Scottish ancestry to mirror Connery's own. Connery regularly tops the polls as the best Bond ever. Now, we've mentioned this a bit before. How have those Connery films dated when you look back at them now? Do you still enjoy them in the same way or do you still have reservations with them or a bit of both? Bit of both. The benefit that Connery had, he had Doctor No, so he had the first one. So he's he's got that kind of iconic moment where you you get to see Bond on screen for the first time, and that is because he had that moment. He was the first kind of actor to play Bond. There's going to be that constant association with that actor being Bond. So there, you've said that he's constantly uh, tops the polls as the best ever Bond, and I think a reason for that is Doctor No. Um, and yeah, from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, great films. Um, commenting on the rest of them, I'm <laughs> not, I, I, I struggle to be as positive. I think the thing with Dr. No is it's the first time you see Bond when he walks into the casino in his suit and then he lights up the cigarette and then he does his introduction to Bond, James Bond. It's, it's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. one of the coolest moments in, in cinema. Personally, I think Goldfinger's got a, a really interesting story because you've got a villain there who's got a fairly interesting plot. Um, he just wants to destroy Fort Knox, so his gold has a higher worth, which is slightly different to some of the others. I remember when I was younger, You Only Live Twice, I really, really enjoyed. And then I watched it again fairly recently, and I didn't like it quite as much. And I think there's an issue where Connery disguises as a Japanese man, which, again, is one of those moments you look at and think, yeah, that would never happen today, and nor should it. Uh, interestingly, with You Only Live Twice, Donald Pleasance is hardly in it, which is strange considering what a iconic character Blofeld would become. Um, he sort of loom, his presence looms large over the film, but then he's only yeah. right at he, the end. He is kind of spectral, isn't he, almost? Yeah. And throughout. And it was, it was interesting. So I thought, wow, this, this guy's so iconic with Bond. And, you know, I remember him so well from this film, and yet he only appears. It's almost like a cameo, which I think is perhaps a testament to, to Donald Pleasance's performance, but perhaps, in fairness, a testament to the way that the character's written. And we see this in other films. That's another completely random example, but in Die Hard with a Vengeance, we don't see Jeremy Irons until over halfway through because he's just referenced and he talks to John McClane. So a similar thing, you have a villain that overhangs rather than one that's there in your face. I mean, for you, Dave, what would you think about those films now? I mean... There's obviously some great moments and there's some good films. To what extent do they hold up, though? Yeah, I think at least Doctor No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger and to an extent Thunderball, they're proper spy thrillers. I, I remember when I was younger, I, I, I love Goldfinger, but I, I used to find the effects, of course, they're very dated and I used to find them a little bit slow and a little bit plodding. But as I've as I've got older, I've really appreciated how they're shot. Uh, the directors, uh, particularly, you know, to Terence Young's direction in Doctor No, it's very elegant. It's very stately. The directors took their time with the shots and the action scenes. They let the tension play out. Um, there's a great bit in Doctor No where Connery's just waiting for um, an adversary just to turn up an informant who can lead him to Doctor No. And just the, the, the director just lets him sit and this plays out. 
with Connery just waiting and you know he's going to kill this guy eventually when he turns up but it's he's just allowed to sit and i think he's messing with a deck of cards or something and it's it's just full of atmosphere and i i do miss those elements in the later films um and i think connery has this aura that when he gets mad you feel someone's going to get hurt if roger moore gets mad he's just going to come out with a double entendre uh, so Connery is genuinely menacing while also being heroic. So he's kind of that perfect balance of assassin and gentleman. And I think, you know, you mentioned Blofeld and I think that's what works so well with Blofeld and spe- the Spectre through line. Um, Blofeld's the head of Spectre for anyone who doesn't know. And it's effective and much better handled in the Connery era than in Craig's era. Um, there's the, the villains are really great. There's a sense of mystery that elevates these villains in this context. Um, yeah, you only live twice is um, very laughable now. <laughs> um, I'm not sure sorry. why I enjoyed it so much as a young as a, as a younger one. Well, I, I did, and I I think it's because I just I really loved martial arts movies, and I loved all the ninjas in it. So I thought mm. that was great. That was my take on it when I was about twelve. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was similar age. Yeah. It, it is probably worth noting as well what I said about Casino Royale that it was a book that had a blank canvas. With Doctor No and Russia with Love, you got two films there that didn't have any Bond kind of conventions at that stage. There were two films that were finding their way into this character and into this world. Um, as you see from the end of the Connery era, they had found their way into this world and they explored and amplified certain things, i.e. Bond going undercover in the most ridiculous way. Um and they just exaggerate it towards the end of, of the Connery era. And what's interesting with the Connery bond is that you do see um, a handful of films there that they don't have those kind of the gadgets. They don't have the, um, those, those very, like you said, double entendres. They just are, this is the character. This is the world that he lives in from golfing onwards you do start to then see all those things being introduced like gadgets and the bond girls and the uh the and it's the humor the attempt at humor i should say (laughs) in some cases um yeah and i think i think that's what i find quite noticeable from the connery era yeah it's almost kind of sad how it all ends because the early films are so iconic and then you've got diamonds are forever at the end where connery's to be honest way too old to be playing well not way too old but he's a bit too old to be playing bond and he's clearly not as invested in the character and it's a weak film um and great theme tune though it is yeah um and then he i don't really know why he did never say never again which i've seen and it's pointless um it's just very pointless uh it's not that great it's a remake, it's a remake of, thunderball. of thunderball yeah yeah, it is yeah and and i don't really know why he did it there is there is that great moment in thunderball though a, a humorous moment and i guess in some respects alludes to the scene we were just discussing from the living daylights when he goes to meet one of the girls and she, she's having a bath and she says can you get me something to put on and he just tosses her a pair of flip-flops and sits down i mean it's again a little bit mate misogynistic is probably not the best word for it but no. um it, it is it is a funny a funny scene nonetheless and it's well that's it i mean there are some that's bond... the humor isn't it that's yeah the there are there was... are misogynistic scenes in bond but there's also just good humoured scenes as well um, it's Bond just showing perhaps showing himself to perhaps know that he's a a bit of 
a bit of all right to these ladies and he, he kind of knows that she's going to want to she's going to want to sleep with me and he he, he kind of uses that because he does end up shortly after in bed with her so no yeah, yeah. the, the thing that i got from thunderball as well is that i'm not a fan of underwater action i, I it's like there's a lot going on but it's all slow and it, it's it's just it yeah, can you get put a the ocean in there after a, a while <laughs> slow paced yeah. doesn't it they tried, but I don't think it, it it kind of as the payoff that they'd hoped for is this kind of huge act, action sequence. And it's just all very is, slow and repetitive. There is a good climax with Lagos when he's, he's about to shoot Bond, and it's perhaps along with the laser sequence in Goldfinger, a moment when Bond you actually think Bond might suddenly actually die, and then all of a sudden from behind Lagos, the girl comes up and shoots him in the back. She says, I'm glad I killed him. Bond says, you're glad. Um, so again, maybe that's a, a, an allusion to one of the Bond girls actually saving him rather than him being the one to save her. So there, there is that to it. Maybe I'm reading a bit too much into that. But nonetheless, like we said, they are, they are entertaining films, um, films that we enjoy, but they are problematic and they are of their time. And I think you should watch them as such. An avalanche of action. Bigger. Better. Different. It's got to be when he's around. Vistas of sweeping splendor. Different. It must be so if he's in the picture. Fabulous beauties. All of them dolls. Every one different. They've got to be when he's around. My name's Bond. James Bond. The new Bond. Suppose I were to kill you for a thrill. The different 007. Now, sandwiched in between the final two official Sean Connery Bonds was, of course, the George Lazenby era, although I don't think we can really call it an era as it only lasted for one film, which was On Her Majesty's Secret Service in 1969. Lazenby said he only played Bond once, citing the demands of the role being too much and that Bond was becoming an anachronism, something that a younger generation wouldn't go for as a character. Attitude problems and arrogance were also rumoured, and he was the youngest actor to play Bond at just 29, although he was 30, when the film was released. Incidentally, there is a very interesting in-house documentary called All or Nothing, which Lazenby does confess to somewhat messing it up. Lazenby moved to London, England in 64, after serving in the Australian Army. Before becoming an actor, he worked as an auto mechanic, used car salesman, prestige car salesman, and as a male model. In 68, Lazenby was cast as James Bond, despite his only pre-acting being in commercials for Big Fry Man, for Fry Chocolate, and Marlborough Man. Uh, his only film appearance being a bit part in the 65 Italian-made Bond spoof. Lazenby won the role based on a screen test fight scene, a chance encounter with Bond series producer Albertar Broccoli in a hair salon in 1966 had given Lazenby his first shot at getting the role. Broccoli had made a mental note to remember Lazenby as a possible candidate at the time when he thought Lazenby looked like a Bond. The lengths Lazenby went to to get the role included spending his last pounds on acquiring a tailor-made suit from Sean Connery's tailor, which was originally made for Connery, alongside purchasing, purchasing a very Bondish-looking Rolex watch. And it lasted the one film. Should he have been given another go? Should he have been given more time? What are your thoughts on the matter? Um, yes, I, I think Lazenby, it's an interesting one for me. It, he's the weakest Bond and he's not that great. 
but I do think he should have been given another go. And it's a shame from all accounts. Um, there is some conflict, but as you said, Lazenby's pretty much admitted it himself that he undid himself. But there are moments in Honor Majesty's Secret Service when you think there's something he's got here that could have really developed um, almost a naivety developing into a more ruthless character. And it's interesting as well that he's by far the youngest actor to have played Bond at 29. And I think that did offer a natural athleticism that he, he, he obviously his test fights uh, got him the role and he's very convincing in the fight scenes. And I, I think that creates a lot of excitement and it does also contrast better with his romantic interests. So I think we can all remember Roger Moore in View to a Kill with Jill St. John. It's not quite right, is it? Um, <laughs> you know, the, it, it, you have that extreme other side of the embarrassment. But I, I think there was something there that he could have really developed on and could have been quite an interesting, more sensitive bond, perhaps. So why, why do you think he wasn't given another go, Matt? We know about his, the off-screen issues, but yeah. So you've got the personal, not the first or the last issues, which I've again, having seen the documentary that you mentioned there, uh, all or nothing. Um, I correct myself. It's everything or nothing. Yes, everything or nothing. Sorry, Eon. E-O-N, yeah, yeah. So, I did say all or nothing earlier, but it's everything or nothing. Eon. Yeah, everything or nothing. Having having seen that, it's quite uh, interesting to see Lazen be be quite open with his admitting you know his time was spent around a younger generation who saw bond as a very dated idea and it's quite interesting that we have the conversation now about, about bond being a dated idea you know this is a conversation that was being had in the late 60s so he was clearly influenced and wanting to kind of maybe distance himself from this very regimented um, world I think in terms of the film it's unfortunate that he was given the one film where you as I mentioned earlier about Connery introducing certain conventions within the, the Bond world, in the Lazenby film, they introduced quite a key thing they introduced in that film is the idea of Bond settling down, as opposed to being this man that can kind of go around the world and just pick up anyone and bed anyone. Um, so they gave him a film that maybe... Had that been a Connery film, it might be people might have been a bit more patient with it. But because you got a new actor playing this iconic character, and then on top of that, you're giving this character a world that's slightly different to what people um, got used to with Connery, it's unfortunate for him, really. And had Lazenby had just done a continuation of Connery's Bond, then he probably would have had maybe another film or at least the offer of another film. In many respects, it's an example of the filmmakers trying to move the franchise forward, trying to do something different. It was the first Bond film to have a sad ending, um, arguably the only Bond film to have a sad ending. And maybe it was an example of them thinking, right, what else can we do? How can we've done the same thing a few times? Let's do something new. Maybe people didn't quite go for it. And that's why they realized that, as is often the case with a lot of sequels, if you repeat what you've done before and people like it, then carry on doing that. But to that extent, the film has been reevaluated in recent years and a lot of people do think of it quite highly. And it certainly feeds into thematically feeds into no time to die, Dave. Yeah. Um, uh, even uh, Louis Armstrong's theme tune is used in no time to die. It goes that far. So I think it does show that the film 
And I think has had a deserved reappraisal. Um, Christopher Nolan has cited it as a, an influence on him. And um, I think it might have even influenced the, the the scene in the snow in Inception. I'm not totally sure on that. But um, it is a very good film. I, I've said, you know, Lazenby is the weakest Bond. I think that's that's true. But um, something there is something there um, in his performance. And I think Dinah Rigg is terrific as Tracy. Um, there is admittedly a lack of chemistry between her and Lazenby, which does affect the film, but it's Telly Savalas is a great blow felt and the Spectre angle works well again, still at this point. And I just felt that it was an exciting and kind of muscular adventure. It's very, um, it's very slick and well-played and the action is really well, well done, well choreographed. Um, and it's interesting as well that No Time to Die does feed into feeds from On a Majesty's Secret Service with the idea of Bond settling down. <laughs> um, personally, I never felt well. I really felt this didn't work in No Time to Die, and I, I don't think it works in general. However, and again, spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen this: um, the fact Tracy is killed at the end points to the fact Bond is a blunt tool of the government who can never be devoted to anything or anyone else, which is quite sad, really. It's a, a very powerful theme that start when you've actually seen the film really begs you to rewatch it and informs the whole story. Um, really, any attempts Bond has to, to find connection and love, it's going to be thwarted based on the nature of his job. I actually I quite like in this one as well, Bond going undercover. It kind of just felt a bit more genuine. Generally, yeah. yeah. Are you yeah. saying to you only live twice? It didn't. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm Not saying. Disguise, but yeah. oh, I'm shocked. I'm absolutely shocked. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm similar. I never liked the idea of Bond getting married at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, but then I watched the films out of sequence. Uh, so I perhaps didn't appreciate what they were trying to do with the character at the time and maybe trying mm, to show something different. Point. So the idea of Bond getting married is because it's just so out of kilter with all the other films in which he, yes, he has, he meets these girls and he sleeps with them and he might, he, don't, he kind of has the adventure and then gets with them at the end, but then you never know what happens after that. So the impression is that they just, he just moves on and given the nature of his job, I guess he could never really settle down as well not just because of the globetrotting aspect, but the what you just said about him being a blunt um, tool for the government. So there's a lot to chew over on on a Majesty's Secret Service, isn't there? Because it, it, it almost sits, because it sits at kilter with the rest of the, the franchise, it's it, almost... To that extent, makes it more interesting. It's the, I think it's the most unique Bond film with the weakest Bond, and I find that really a fascinating combination. They also break the fourth wall in this one. This never happened to the other fella. This never happened to the other fella. <laughs> yes, yeah. Rich. Yeah. It's like we are applauding this film for certain... Oh, that's certain what I was applauding it for. That's the only bit I was applauding that's it for. That's the only bit. Um, but some of his one-liners are absolutely terrible. <laughs> the one-liners are supposed to be bad, though, aren't they, in some respects? Like, where's one where Connery electrocute someone in the bath and just says shocking absolutely shocking and then there's we'll talk about austin powers a little bit later on when he just like goes <laughs> the guy gets his head eaten off and he goes oh that's not how you get ahead in life 
I've never been the head of a major organisation, and he keeps relaying them, and they're supposed to be terrible. So just going back to that fourth wall breaking, there is a theory that I heard of that the character James Bond 007, or the name James Bond 007, is just a name assigned to a different person every time. And that's why the character looks different, is played by a different person. It's actually, it is actually a different character. And so when Lazenby says this never happens to the other fella, he's actually referring to the previous person that was James Bond 007. And then in Casino Royale, the which is a film about someone becoming Bond, he doesn't deliver the line James Bond, James Bond until the very end. Just an idea that I read. Yeah, what's interesting there, though, it's the timing of the, like you say, kind of breaking that fourth wall or adding to that argument of, it's a name that's giving that's been given to this person because when it's the last line in the pre-title sequence, it's cheesy. But when it's the last line in the film, it adds something to it. It adds to the to kind of this world and the character. Mm-hmm. But the way it is in uh, Majesty's Secret Service, it does feel just like it's shoehorned in as a bit of kind of like, oh, this will keep the Connery fans happy. Yeah, it's, it's almost apologising that Lazenby's not Connery. It, that's yeah. how I see it, yeah. Perhaps it's a bit, and it was a bit early for the film to be making those sort of in-jokes. Absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah. Although it I is know. a good it is a good introduction to him as Bond. It's quite a Yeah, fourth wall break aside, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly, it's good. yeah. It is really good, that yeah, sort it, of each it, fight. And he's kept the camera sort of behind him, isn't it, quite a lot. Yeah. And, yeah. I suppose there are a lot more overt references in the Pierce Brosnan Bonds, aren't there, as well? But whether they're clumsy or fun, but then given the history of the franchise at the time, maybe there was a bit more leeway with it and a bit more acceptance of it. Roger Moore is James Bond 007 in Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die. My name's Bob. James Bond. Names is for tombstones, baby. Waste him now. James Bond is back, and wherever he drops in, it can mean only one thing. Trouble! This is the Bond adventure with more excitement, more action, more danger, and more. Much more. Roger Moore as James Bond 007. After Lazenby, we then moved on to the Roger Moore era, which started with Live and Let Die in 1973, Man with the Golden Gun in 74, The Spy Who Loved Me in 77, Moonraker in 79, Fiore's Only was 1981, Octopussy in 83, and A View to a Kill in 1985, lasting just over 12 years. The longest serving Bond for seven films in the franchise. Connery also did seven, if we count Never Say Never Again, but I don't think we should. In 64, eight years before Roger Moore took over the role, he played James Bond in a sketch on the BBC comedy show Mainly Millicent, episode dated 17 July 1964. In the sketch, Bond is on holiday at a resort where he encounters a female Russian spy, played by Millicent Martin, the star of the show, who is also on holiday. Bond and the female spy spend the sketch trying to do each other in. Roger Moore was good friends with Lois Maxwell, who played Miss Moneypenny in the James Bond movies. They first met in the mid-40s at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, where they were in the same class in 1944. He was the oldest person to debut as James Bond. He was 45 when Live and Let Die came out in 73. Uh, 
He was older than any other actor to play James Bond when he played him at 57 in A View to a Kill in 1985, eclipsing Sean Connery, who was 52 when he played Bond in Never Say Never Again. He officially announced his retirement from playing Bond on December the 3rd, 1985, as it was agreed by all involved in the franchise that Moore had got too old for the role. Moore himself was quoted as saying that he felt embarrassed to be seen performing love scenes with beautiful actresses who were young enough to be his daughters. He said in an interview for This Morning that he felt too old for his second Bond film, The Man with the Golden Gun. He missed out on being James Bond earlier because of television commitments. He turned down on Her Majesty's Secret Service due to his commitments on the TV series The Saints and Diamonds Are Forever due to his commitments on The Persuaders. Now, the more films do represent a shift in tone to a more light-hearted approach to Bond. To what extent do you think it's a continuation and to what extent do you think it's different from the Connery era? I think it is very different. I think there was a clear certain intention by Moore and maybe even the producers to create something different but using the same character archetype um because they knew connery had become so iconic they needed to change tack and more did bring more of a suave humor to it and i i'm i'm i find the more films quite difficult to judge because i think cinematically they're the worst of the bond franchise but as someone who's grown up watching them, they've got a real nostalgia value for you, and I still love watching them. Um, but they are really tonally uneven, um, as you as you mentioned, and certainly the latter films in this run are very dated and have some really bad scenes in them. Um, you you can't get away that some of the uh, from some of the humour being very puerile, and the films really suffer from it, and some of them are very much directing by formula which, as I said, does render them a little bit inadequate cinematically. Um, and, you know, it's certainly a far cry from the very first Sean Connery films. I mean, Matt, if you look at something like The Man with a Golden Gun, which I think people generally think is probably the best more Bond, when you look back at it, it's not a great film, really. Uh, I mean, you've got... Britt Eklund as, as Good Knight, who just sort of gets in the way and is quite an annoying character and is just really there as, for want of a better word, eye candy and doesn't really serve the plot particularly and the, the, the narrative is odd. But what you do have is an absolutely iconic Bond villain played by the late, great Christopher Lee. Yeah, exactly. I think when I when I said that with Connery, he gets is quite fortunate that he gets Doctor No. I think with Roger Moore, he's quite fortunate that he gets a series of films that are broadcast friendly. Like I say, there's that kind of, I think for most people, they will have that sentimental connection because there was more chance of there being a Roger Moore Bond on TV during the holidays than a Connery Bond. I could be wrong there. I don't know the facts. I don't know you know, the, the, whether or not that's true. But from my experience, it was always the Roger Moore films that were on TV. So when people talk about his films, there is that element of sentimentality, that kind of that nostalgia that you might not have. You definitely don't have it with the Lazenby one. And with Connery, maybe with Dr. No, Goldfinger. Um, but with more, I think, look, as you, you just listed out the, the films there, even though all of, so a few of them are openly criticized it wouldn't surprise me if someone was to claim one of his films as their favourite of the Bond franchise because of that nostalgia, that sentimentality. 
with Roger Moore, it's kind of it's the first time really where you explore the the concept of a, an actor being too old to play this character. And what it would have been interesting to see whether or not to see had they explored that theme in the films, i.e., this 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 guy is getting old, um, and he's getting too old for this world that you know he's engaged with. That might have been an interesting approach, but that would never have happened in these in the Roger Moore films. Um, because Roger Moore in every one of those films is, you know, they attempt to make it like he's 21 um, through various makeup tricks and uh, very convincing toupees. Yes, and like the introduction of him wearing a, you know, a leather jacket to make him look young. De-aged so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it So there's a there's a lot of interesting uh elements to the the more era like i say i think for a lot of people it was their introduction to bond especially man with a golden gun a few to a kill and live and let die i would say if you ask anyone there's a chance that was one of those films was possibly their first bond film that they saw they were among mine and do you actually i'm just curious do you, do you think roger moore also benefited from the fact he there was still quite a lot of fleming's novels and short stories to be covered in in the film franchise, and he got quite a lot of them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there there is a lot more attempt at humour in the Roger Moore films, isn't there? And you have these almost carry on one liners at the end of the Spy You Love Me. I'm keeping the British end up at the end of Moonraker. I think he's attempting re-entry. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that's what makes them broadcast friendly. That that's why yeah. they were on at Christmas and Easter because they're they're. they're the innuendos aren't family friendly, but the tone of the film, tone of some of those films were. Yeah. You could have it on a Monday, up past five in the afternoon, your family get together to watch it. And there would always be that awkward moment of like, what does it mean there? <laughs> when he's talking yeah. about, you know, getting your end up or whatever. It, it's, it's. Can I also say, I love, in the spoil of me, Stromberg's the main villain. I, can I just say that I love his motivation is he just wants to live underwater. Great. <laughs> So it just reminded me of the when Homer Simpson does a whole song about they're going to start a new life under the sea. And Marge <laughs> says that's your solution to everything is to move under the sea. Well, Stromberg happen. agrees. Yes, I did. <laughs> Homer, Homer Simpson is a Bond villain. There we go. But I mean, yeah. tonally, you sort of say they're they're light-hearted, but for your eyes only is an interesting one because I think that's quite an interesting espionage yeah. story at the heart of that. It was after Moonraker, which had gone up into space, and they wanted to strip it down a bit, and the whole plot revolves around this MacGuffin of the ATEC which tells you where uh, certain British spy satellites or certain British something, I can't remember exactly what, is is hidden. So it's a, something the Russians want to get their hand on and Bond needs to get his hand on. And it's quite low-key in that regard. And what I also liked about it was the fact that Bond doesn't actually save the day. It's kind of got a neutral ending, which I thought was fairly original and clever uh, with spoiler warning what happens is the, the russian general comes to take it off him and he just throws it off the side of a cliff and says look you're not going to have it and we're not going to have it um, which was a slightly bold plot point in many respects i guess but where that film is totally all over the place i mean in one regard you mentioned about exploring bond being an older character and there is the young ice skater that throws herself at him and he rejects her advances because quite how that scene played out and whether in an earlier edit of the script he doesn't reject her but that's something that bond is he's not interested in her because it's almost like he is acknowledging that age difference is a very subtle thing 
But then in terms of the humour, there's that really strange final scene where Bond gets a phone call from Margaret Thatcher. It's really odd and it's really off kilter and it, it plays like a comic relief sketch. It, it's, it would be quite a funny skim, quite a funny scene in isolation, but to tack onto the end of this espionage story is really strange. And I think that's the general problem with a lot of the more films. And I know, Dave, you've got some feelings on Octopussy and him dressing up as a clown, despite the fact that there's quite an interesting story about smuggling bombs across countries. Yeah, but what we all really wanted to see was Roger Moore dressed as a clown. Yeah, I mean, this kind of stuff scuppers a lot of Roger Moore's Bond films, but I, I do, I do love his Bond films. I, 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 I just love them. Um, he, I mean, come on, he was too old to start playing Bond, and never mind when he finished. And he's cheesy, um, but there's such good humour in many parts of the films. And you look at Live and Let Die, Spy Who Loved Me. They've got tremendous soundtracks. I'd say Live and Let Die's got the best fr- um, soundtrack of the series. I, it, it just drove uh, my imagination when i was when i was younger i, I loved um the sound of a lot of the more bonds and, and they're rollicking good adventures and uh, they are definitely for nostalgia and they don't hold up as great films but they're fun if you see the ridiculousness in them like for example when roger mora's bond makes a quiche after finishing a, a, a gunfight oh voila quiche they have it sounds interesting mm. What is it? An omelette. <laughs> and then uh, in uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, there's a scene when he's he's with Britt Eklund and he, he locks her in a cupboard and Maud Adams comes into the room and then he sleeps with her as well. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But then you do, as I mentioned, have that great villain in Scaramanga. And I also love the... I'd hidden... say Christopher Lee is probably the best Bond villain and Man with the Golden Guns are a very average film, but um, Lee is just worth watching it alone. He's absolutely, absolutely tremendous in it, and I, I love. I also love the the scene in the partly sunken ship in the harbour where they've got the spy base. I think that's just sort of good imagination and good production design. Quite quite intuitive. I yeah, say. and they so, use locations yeah. very well. I think they, as they have like done that. across all Bond films, they've used the locations very well. Absolutely. I, After I'm so all, I'm alright in thinking. Just to quickly comment on Eyes Only, I've had to just check this up because for some reason I, I it sounds like it's made up. But when you talk about tonally, your eyes only for your uh, yeah for your eyes only, like you remember how that film opens with Blofeld. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. And it, it was like yeah we we need to show that we're Blofeld is not the bad guy in this film so they just get rid of him in the opening scene by just oh, yeah, dropping yeah. him into a, <laughs> quite a chimney it's not, yeah it's not and that's how Blofeld. the biggest villain in Bond history dies he's just dropped <laughs> in a chimney and but even that opening sequence is totally uneven because you've got this ridiculous end for the iconic bad guy and it is a stupid rubbish end that nobody should have ever. I've heard it's not actually it's not actually Blofeld. It's, it, there's something to do with it. It's meant to look like him or something strange. I believe it is supposed to be Blofeld. I, I, I think there is some debate on that though. There was, yeah. yeah, I think there was but some reason it, why they couldn't that, have Blofeld. Then, I think. It starts but, off quite somber because Bond's looking in the at churchyard, Tracy's isn't he? grave. Yeah, and he's yeah. looking over his wife's grave, and it, it it's quite moving. And then there's just this ridiculous helicopter stunt. And but he goes up in the helicopter, and the priest makes the sign Bond's. of the cross, and it's all kind of quite. Ooh, and then yeah, it's very. They should very have just thrown the quiche de cabernet making scene in that bit and just had done yeah. with it. I think. 
Absolutely. The name that means excitement is back. Bond. James Bond. That girl must be very talented. Shoot up. Believe me, my interest in her is purely professional. What is this? I've had a few optional extras installed. Wherever he goes, adventure follows. Two of our men are dead. Koskov's named you. Then I must die. Eliminate him. Kill him! He lives on the edge. Whoever she was, I must have scared the living daylights out of her. James Bond, 007, The Living Daylights. After the Roger Moore era, we moved into Timothy Dalton. Can we call that an era? It lasted just two films, The Living Daylights in 1987 and then License to Kill in 1989. It was then legal issues between MGM and Eon, which delayed another sequel for six years. Dalton was contracted to do a third, but he didn't want to sign up for another series of films after the lingual wrangle. The script was already in production for the final film in Dalton's original three-movie contract. However, a protracted four-year legal battle between MGM and Bond producers Eon puts everything on hold. Although Dalton's contract had now expired, he was approached to start work on GoldenEye in 1994. He later said that Albert Broccoli asked if I would like to come back. I said, well, I've actually changed my mind a little bit. I think that I'd love to do one, try and take the best of the two that I've done and consolidate them into a third. He said quite rightly, look, Tim, you can't do one. There's no way after a five-year gap between movies that you can come back and just do one. You'll have to plan on four or five. And I thought, oh, no, that would be the rest of my life. Too much, too long. So I respectfully declined. Casting director Debbie McWilliams claims Dalton was never comfortable in the role. His colder, grittier portrayal of James Bond is considered by many fans of the franchise to be the closest to the characterization of Bond from the original novels by Fleming. It was greeted with a mixed reaction from the general public following the 12 years of Roger Moore's much more lighthearted portrayal that we've just been discussing. Dalton said no previously, feeling himself too young and fearful of following in Connery's footsteps, but he was lured by the promise of playing a meaner and moodier Bond. He wasn't altogether happy with the results. Interestingly enough, we were trying to do what the Bond films have since become. They wanted to be tougher, more real, and move away from the silliness. When it came down to actually doing it, they didn't want to take the risk of it not working. The Living Daylights and his second and final 007 film, License to Kill, were, he felt, a bit of a mishmash, but I think what they did with the Daniel Craig films was a terrific step. Desmond Llewellyn, the actor who played Q in many Bond films, claimed in an interview of Dalton that his portrayal of James Bond was closer to Ian Fleming's original novel version of the character than any other Bond actor. Now, I remember Dalton saying once that he saw Bond as a cold-blooded killer. I also remember Roger Moore saying that Ian Fleming said that Bond didn't like killing, but he took pleasure in doing it well. Um, what I think we can discuss here is whether the, each Bond from one to the next is the same character are they all slightly different i mean we know they are but are they actually playing a different version or a completely different character entirely yeah i think it's a good question and it invites an argument for changing say bond's race or gender which is very topical at the moment um 
I do feel this probably would be too far removed from who Bond's been presented to be, you know, born and made in privilege in what the 1950s and a Cold War veteran. Um, so we're kind of, again, looking where is Bond now and where's Bo- where could Bond go? But I, I think there is a follow through line that there, that all Bonds have this inherent quality of being an adherent to a dying system of rule. And yeah, I think to, in all honesty, I think portraying Bond through an actor from a, dis- a different racial background or gender would remove the essential driving theme of the franchise in its extant state. Now, what we really need to ask is whether it's time for that change. And I, th- I think there's a good argument there. Um uh, speaking more to Dalton, I think I would have loved to see him play James Bond in Casino Royale. He, uh, for me, he's a uh, he's the most sensitive. Yet ex- he, he goes from being a very sensitive Bond, the most sensitive Bond, to being extremely ruthless and cold. And I just feel Dalton would have been lauded as the greatest, probably if he'd been given more than, admittedly, the average films that Living Daylights and especially License to Kill are. Um, but I think there's a really interesting performance there as Bond. I mean, Matt, you've you've read Casino Royale. How how do you see Dalton as the most authentic version of Bond? Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. And I've never actually thought about that before. And as you said it, I, I was like, yeah, that would work. Um, I feel like it's quite clear that Dalton went back to the source material and just to kind of almost try to capture the character. And I feel like he he possibly went back to Casino Royale and maybe focused on that one novel as opposed to going any deeper into it because the beauty of that novel is at that time it wasn't connected to Connery more or Lazenby. It was just material that was there that he could really soak up and put into the character. Now, I think with Dalton, it was perhaps the wrong... It was a case of bad timing and maybe films that weren't, you know as good as they could have been living daylights is, is is okay and it starts brilliantly you've got the rock of gibraltar sequence and it's absolutely fantastic it's really exciting um i think dalton introduces himself really well as bond um but when it starts moving away from as i understand it the original uh, short story i think it does get a little bit uh, meandering and a bit ponderous so maybe, and a license to kill should have been so much better. It's um, what a great idea. You know, he revokes his license. Yeah. Uh, he gives up his weapon, revokes his license to kill to pursue a personal vendetta. It's a great storyline and has some really brutal scenes that I think the audiences weren't quite prepared for. But license to kill is just not a great film and it could have been a lot better. Uh, there's good moments in it. Um yeah. It almost feels like Dalton was a very good Bond, but as we've been through the history of it, he fell victim to the legal wranglings and I think that is the case, yeah. Never really got the opportunity to do what he maybe could have done with the role. Um, and had there been more films, there was a big gap between Living Daylights and Goldeneye. Had there been mm. more in that time, yeah, I think he was unfulfilled in the role, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we alluded to the fact that he, he would have come back to do the one more, but he didn't want to do four or five um and maybe that is a real shame um we're, we're going to get on to brosden shortly but to that end it felt like he was a good choice of bond a good bond but never really got to do as much as he perhaps could with the role and 
do as many films as we would arguably like to have seen. And the threat is real. GoldenEye exists. A radiation surge that destroys everything with an electronic circuit. You can still depend on one man. I want you to find Goldeneye. Three. Find who took it. Two. And stop it. One. Name's Bond. James Bond. The world's most famous secret agent is back. We aim to please. And this time, 007 is facing the ultimate enemy. The man who knows him best. Hello, James. What an unpleasant surprise. 006. What's the message? No pithy comeback? He was your friend. And now he's your enemy and you will kill him. Is the satellite in range? Target is London. Now. The entire world is about to be caught in the crossfire. See you in hell, James. You first. Kill him. The pleasure will be all mine. Would you check her out? Head to toe. Three clicks, arms the fuse. Don't say it. The writing's on the wall. Grow up, 007. I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War. You know, James, I was always better. Both of you, stop it! You like boys with toys. The trick is to quit while you're still here. I wouldn't think of it. Charming, sophisticated secret agent. Shaken, but not disturbed. <laughs> Get us out of here! Bond, only Bond. Man just won't take a hint. Gun. That depends on your definition of safe sex. On November 17th, Rabbit! United Artists brings you, trust me, James Bond. Why can't you just be a good boy and die? That's one trick I've never learned. We then came into the Pierce Brosnan era, which lasted from 1995 through to 2002, taking in the films Goldeneye in 95, Tomorrow Never Dies two years later, The World Is Not Enough in 1999, and Die Another Day in 2002. Pierce Brosnan was chosen to play 007 in 1986 and was given the script to The Living Daylights. Although he was contracted to the television series Remington Steel for seven seasons, NBC decided to cancel the show at the end of the fourth season, which meant that Brosnan was free to play Bond in The Living Daylights that following year. However, shortly after the end of that season, NBC had second thoughts about cancelling the show and subsequently approached the Bond producers directly in an attempt to strike a deal that would allow Brosnan to play both James Bond and Remington Steele the following year. NBC also offered to completely reschedule the shooting of Remington Steele to ensure that there were no scheduling conflicts. But eventually, Albert R. Broccoli famously told NBC that James Bond will not be Remington Steele and Remington Steele will not be James Bond. Accordingly, Brosnan would only play Bond if the show remained cancelled. NBC had a 60-day deadline to revoke their decision to cancel Remington Steel series. And at 6.30pm on the 60th day of the deadline, Brosnan learned that NBC decided to make a fifth season, so the role of the new James Bond went to Timothy Dalton. NBC went on to make only six episodes of the fifth season of Remington Steel before finally cancelling the show for good. To date, Brosnan is the only Bond actor to have never technically appeared in a Bond film based on an original Ian Fleming novel or short story. 
Brosnan said, it never felt real to me. I never felt I had complete ownership over Bond because you'd have these stupid one-liners, which I loathe, and I always felt phony doing them. I'd look at myself in the suit and tie and think, what the heck am I doing here? Such sentiments were nothing new. That was always the frustrating thing about the role. Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson play it so safe. The pomposity and rigmarole they put directors through is astounding. I can do anything I want to do now. I'm not beholden to them or anyone. I'm not shackled by some contracted image. That's what Brodham said after he was the Bond. Now, one thing I always loved about the Austin Powers film, the first one, was that he was very much a 60s spy, frozen in time, and then released in the 90s. And that's what I felt the Brosnan Bonds became. Um, I really liked Brosnan as Bond, but they were in many ways trying to bridge that gap um, between modern day and the past. And in some respects doing it successfully, but in others, they still felt perhaps a little bit dated in their narrative. What do you think of that, Dave? Yeah, I think... I, I do think the Brosnan films... I, I, I re, Well, I should say that when I first saw Goldeneye, um, obviously I haven't been a Bond film for a long, for quite a while since 1989 with Licence to Kill. I'd loved it. It was a really, at the time, a real tub-thumping reboot of the franchise. You had that great stunt where Bond jumps off the dam at the beginning and it's really, you know, the action is extremely well done in, in the film and it's, you know, Brosnan is a really suave and capable Bond. But I would say you even Goldeneye, revising the whole series of Pierce Brosnan Bonds, they really don't hold up very well. They're very, very cheesy. They look very dated. They don't seem to quite know what they want to do in the sense that, well, we we sort of want to be a bit jokey and a bit self-referential, um, but we kind of want Bond still be the hero. We don't quite know how to make that work. Um, and I find it interesting that Connery's first films probably hold up better now than Goldeneye. Um, and I think it also demonstrates how the franchise shows how it struggles away from the source material without the Fleming novels underpinning it. I think the stories just feel a bit by the numbers and, you know, it really did get very bad with The World Is Not Enough and then Die Another Day, which is the absolute nadir of the franchise. For me, it's so bad. Ter it's, it's even got a rubbish theme tune. Uh, it's, you know, it was a really bad conclusion to the whole series. And I think it's a shame because I think Brosnan probably would have earned a lot more recognition for his work as Bond had his films been better. As I say, I think he was... I think he I think he performed the role really well and I think he was doing it against some pretty bad scripts. I mean with Die Another Day it almost it turns into a sci-fi film doesn't it especially with that invisible car which was just the moment that it really jumped the shark and you thought right you're, you're trying to do far too much with this you're trying to be too clever and I think that in all of them there are some good elements even in die another day you actually see bond being tortured during the title sequence which was quite an original idea i quite enjoyed that uh, with tomorrow never dies you had that media mogul um, a fairly camp bond villain which again perhaps would have worked better in the 80s with the likes of, of rupert murdoch and that it, it felt a little dated at the time um but nonetheless as with all bond films i think there are enjoyable things in them but fundamentally matt the opinion seems to be that Brosnan was brilliant, the film's less so. Yeah, and I think even Brosnan admits that. I think, again, seeing interviews with him, he, he, you'll often see him laughing out loud at the films that he made. 
especially those last two. Um, but yeah, the thing with, like for example, in The World Is Not Enough, it's a film that I really didn't get on board with yet. You've got a play on convention and with the Bond girl, spoiler, turning out to be the villain. You know, it's yeah. moments like that that you think, okay, well, at least they're experimenting with with this world. Yeah, and I but... think in Goldeneye, you, I, I don't know if anyone would agree with this, but I, I certainly felt it was the one film where Isabella Skorupko, um, who plays Natalia, as the as sort of Bond's love interest, but I, I think she's almost got her own subplot in that film. She's almost got her own story. She's quite autonomous from Bond's yeah, story right. in that, which I found quite interesting. Um, and, uh, you know... I think Sean Bean's a great Bond villain. Um, it's not that there aren't good moments in the films, but, um, you know, you've also got World Is Not Enough, Christmas Jones, Die Another Day, Madonna's theme song, and Cameo, as if you couldn't get enough of one or the other. Yeah. And the other thing with GoldenEye is you can't really, you can't discuss GoldenEye without acknowledging the game GoldenEye that came out because a lot Absolutely, of people yeah. would have been introduced to Bond via that game and not the film. Mm. And it, it that's you know that's yeah bomb. I mean it's a film that's had significant popular cultural influence yeah, yeah so that that's mm. the kind of the the Bond world expanding into other kind of formats and with Goldeneye I'd say you know you you always try and look for iconic moments in all of these eras and I'd say with Goldeneye I think you might get a couple like you say with the with the jump at the start the 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 tank. Um, kind of chasing. And there is a nice uh, self-reference. Uh, there is a nice reference to Fleming in that Goldeneye was the name of his villa that he had in Jamaica. Yeah, so it kind of like Goldeneye is. It works for those reasons, but the problem is when you get to die another day, it's even thinking back to the world is not enough. You mentioned Sophie Marceau becoming a villain, and you get a lot more of Judy Dench's M in that, and she is out in the field as rather than just being behind a desk, which is something we later get in Skyfall. So there are these moments in it and there are there's that famous uh, river thames chase sequence and there's that great bit when he, he dives in the boat and then straightens his tie which i thought was was quite smart but as we said with the more films there are good moments in all of them probably even in die another day i mentioned the the scene where he is he's tortured but it just got to the point it was the 40th anniversary and they just thought right we're just going to chuck in loads of references loads of humor sort of just put everything throw everything at it and see what sticks and it was the 20th bond so it was this big iconic event uh picture and i think that one thing the bond franchise really does have that we've we're losing these days and this is another subject they are it's perhaps the only franchise where you do get these event pictures where everyone has to go to the cinema and there's a new bond film out we don't get the summer blockbusters in the same way with streaming and marvel releasing a superhero film every other day and what have you but the bond films do have that and i remember that with die another day it had the royal premiere and there was so much furore around it and then the film itself there were bits in it that probably you can enjoy um but broadly Tsunami. speaking it's just you know, there's some bad CGI in it, isn't there? As yeah, well. no one ever talks about the, I would say, very problematic angle that a Korean dictator can have a bit of plastic surgery and end up looking like Toby Stevens. I just, yeah, <laughs> there's disbelief being stretched, and then there's and there's the invisible car. sci-fi <laughs> and, and the invisible sci-fi. Car. It became it became science fiction and, and not in a way that Moonraker did. It was yeah, which I think to show bonds, there are still rules if you like in the bond franchise that 
if you push them too hard, it just doesn't work. It's it's strange, but they is it isn't there a broccoli quote where he says we're not science fiction, we're science fact. That's quite a. The, I think that does. He's on camera saying we're not. Obviously, this was before Die Another Day. Um, but even the films that he was referring to of that kind of era, you can still break them down and saying, uh, I think there's some fiction here. <laughs> um, yeah. But with Die Another Day, they just take it to 11, don't they? They just go crazy. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I think that that is def- definitely the weakest, certainly of the Brosnams and maybe of the entire series, I think, as, as a I would say that, piece yeah. of narrative yeah, cinema. It, it really doesn't work. And as I mentioned, Austin Powers, and that's why that works so well, because it really takes the mickey out of bond and i just absolutely love one of my favorite scenes in comedy cinema is when they have bond around the table and dr evil son says should we, should we kill him he says no i'm going to place him in an easily escapable situation involving exotic and overly elaborate death so why don't we just kill him he says no nope, you just don't get it do you and then he says begin the unnecessarily slow dipping mechanism close the doors well don't you want to see what happens no i'm just going to assume that it all went to plan and i think the brosnan film's almost suffered from that because it was so easy to do parodies of bond and johnny english came out in the late 90s i think as well there were a lot of mickey takes of of bond and in many ways it was almost taking the mickey out of itself i guess um and ultimately it needed the big reset uh, and lo and behold i think they really took on board what happened with die another day from a, a critical perspective although it was a huge box office success and then four years later, in 2006, we had the Daniel Craig era. Your file shows no kills, Bond. But to become a double O, it takes two. How did he die? Your contact? Not well. You needn't worry. The second is... Yes. Considerably. The man was Le Chiffre, private banker to the world's terrorists, which would explain how he could set up a high-stakes poker game at Casino Royale in Montenegro. If he loses this game, he'll have nowhere to run. You're the best player in the service. The Treasury has agreed to stake you in the game. But if you lose, our government will have directly financed terrorism. I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed house. You noticed. I hope our little game isn't causing you to perspire. It doesn't bother you killing those people. Well, I wouldn't be very good at my job if it did. How's our girl melted your cold heart yet? James, get the girl out. You're not going to let me in there. You've got your armor back on. I have no armor left. You've stripped it from me. Whatever is left of me. Whatever I am. I'm yours. The only question remains. Will you yield? In time?
starting with Casino Royale in 2006, Quantum of Solace two years later, Skyfall in 2012, Spectre in 2015, and more recently, No Time to Die six years later in 2021. Now, despite the negative press surrounding his selection as Pierce Brosnan's successor as James Bond, press felt he was unsuitable for the character and the website Bond Not Blonde is still active, apparently. It's something of a Bond fan site. Craig's performance as 007 in the debut Casino Royale earned overwhelming critical acclaim to the point Steven Spielberg predicted Craig would earn an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor in the movie. Craig ended up receiving a BAFTA nomination, the first time a Bond actor had received such a major nomination for his performance as James Bond. In 2015, though, Craig was asked, can you imagine doing another Bond movie? He said, now I'd rather break this glass and slash my wrists. No, not at the moment, not at all. That's fine. I'm over it at the moment. We're done. All I want to do is move on. When asked about this quote a few years later, he said it was on the day after the film he had ended on Spectre 2015. He'd been away from home for a year. In October 2016, he claimed he loved playing Bond after Casino Royale. He's the first Bond actor to play Bond. And it was the first big reset of the character. Now, it was somewhat inspired by the Bourbon films, which are more up to date and grittily, gritty. And they initially removed Money, Penny and Q from the first two films until they came back in. I think Q came back in in Skyfall and then Money, Penny as something of a reveal at the end of Skyfall. I mean, the Craig films are generally considered to be really good. And we mentioned them receiving BAFTA nominations, so they were received good critical responses as well as big box office success it was a big reset i look back at the films now i think that there are two fantastic films in there the other three i do have some issues with to varying degrees but generally speaking what are your thoughts on the the daniel craig era of bond matt uh, I think he was fortunate that he was following up on uh, Die Another Day because they could have done anything and it would have been great. But Casino Royale, it, it had to be least, done. Yeah. It had to be done. Casino Royale had to be done and it kind of I'm surprised they didn't do it sooner. Um, again, I don't know whether that was legal reasons, but uh, yeah, Daniel Craig in Casino Royale is just, what more can you say really? Um, like the the opening scene him claiming claiming his double o status is just fantastic and you know it's kind of it just really sets the tone of the film um but i would say with from my memory i think he's also one the one bomb where the level of expectation is constantly high because i remember after casino royale quantum of solace was like the pressure was on <laughs> and unfortunately they failed to meet the standards that Casino Royale had kind of laid out and like you say there there's two very good films and I'd say the, the rest are slowly underwhelming um, but it was a very much a much needed kind of reboot of the franchise and yeah it was just great to see Casino Royale done properly. Yeah, and I definitely haven't just been on Google um, to check (laughs) this. And yes, Casino Royale wasn't made earlier because United Artists did not own the rights to the book at the time. Columbia bought them, I think. So that, yeah, which I think led to that spoof version of Casino Royale with David Niven, which is really, really bad. to plague this franchise, didn't they? Indeed. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. It's all the way through. Um, Yeah, Just just a little aside there. Sorry, go on, Dave. Yeah, no, that's it. Um, well, I was I was going to say, um, Quantum of Solace suffered as a result of the writers' strike, I think, and it had some production issues. But it was Dave the first direct sequel to a Bond film, which was an interesting take, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was. It's not something they've really attempted before. I suppose you could argue Diamonds Are Forever sequels on from sequels on <laughs> sequels on from uh, On a Majesty's Secret Service. You see Connery reprising his role as Bond and hunting Blofeld to take revenge for the murder of his wife. Um, so there was that. So I mean, then the film just goes in a different direction. So there was a segue there. Um, I don't know if it really worked for me trying to cons- trying to create a consistent through line. Um, I mentioned earlier how great Spectre were as this organization in the Connery era. I think it they're re- it's really badly handled in the Craig era. I I think it it's almost arbitrary. They they're going they keep mentioning Quantum for example, and then oh no, actually Quantum are just a part of Spectre, and it, I I don't really think this was where they'd intended to go. And it became a real mess, didn't it? Because yeah, you, you know, and they were adding unnecessary details. They ruined the mystery of Spectre. You know, it's like oh, Blofeld's Bond's brother. What? That doesn't make any sense. So I, th- I, for me, that never quite worked. Um, but Daniel Craig, I, I, it's an interesting one. I, I'm not sure I like him as Bond per se, the character, but I do think his performance is very good. I think he's really convincing in every single aspect, which I don't think you've totally had since Connery. But he could do it all. I mean, they almost on the earlier point, they almost reset again with Skyfall, and then when they went into Spectre, they tried to bring back elements that they'd forgotten about from quantum of solace to skyfall and then again into no time to die which again it didn't work it's like we, we with spectre we're making a sequel to skyfall and to quantum of solace at the same time and it all just got a little bit muddled mm-hmm. and the, the idea that um silver was this was a villain he was a really good bond villain played by javier bardem in skyfall and then you discover that there's a villain above him and you think well what was his purpose and then a, you find that there's another villain also linked to them in no time to die and you think well what happens if one of the other earlier villains had killed bond and then the other guy wants his revenge and it all as individual films they might work but as a, a continuation it, it just gets into a bit of a mess really i think it's a shame does. isn't it because we've like i remember when they announced the title specter and i there was definitely excitement there it was like oh great you know we've got we've done casino rail you know we've we've kind of gone into the history of james bond and where he, you know he's kind of family home and now we're introducing spectre and he's kind of like to to give a bond film the title spectre again talking about expectations like i i was kind of i was so excited but Me again too. watching it you're like oh <laughs> okay you've 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 definitely uh it's a shame because we're not going to get another spectre are we you're not going to get another film that's kind of that they're specifically focusing on the Spectre organization, whereas this was the era to do it. And it just was very underwhelming. Yeah. And I mean, I I've 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 claimed for a long time to anyone who'll bother listening to me that I really feel Skyfall would have been the perfect end note for the Bond franchise. I feel that's the point it should have finished. And for them to almost just go back to nostalgia while still trying to keep it modern, I think created problems in the last two films that, you know, didn't really work for me. I think Skyfall is, it takes quite a somber tone. It's almost accepting that Bond has reached his conclusion and there is a sense of of finale about it. Um, And there's, there's some great themes of, 
parental responsibility and um, how Bond is a child of the state and the state is no longer there for him anymore. Um, I, th- I think it would have just been a mature and it's, it's a very interesting film because it's, it's, it's possibly the most, shall we say, for want of a better word, maybe artistic of the series. And I think it's got a lot of somber concepts. You know, there's that great shot of all the Union Jacks draped over coffins, the Empire's dying, uh, Bond is becoming irrelevant. And I, th- I think to have finished on that point would have been a very satisfying way to to end the franchise. And to and contrast that, the way they ended it was very different. <laughs> yeah, well, not, that's not, um, not as subtle. I wasn't a fan of No Time to Die at all. I think it, it, I think it's actually a very good spy thriller. I don't think it's a very good Bond film. Um, yeah, it, it just, yeah. All the things that shouldn't really be in a Bond film are there. <laughs> you know, Bond settling down. He's you know he's cleaning up baby vomit and uh, mashing carrots in the morning and then uh, yeah then there comes that ending which just didn't it was just so over the top for me and not the way to sign off shall we say without going into too much spoiler territory. I mean with, and, with sorry Remy Malik's a rubbish villain as well. <laughs> with with Skyfall you you mentioned the ending I mean I love the the use of Judy Dench as a as a Bond girl in that yeah was, yeah yeah. That was a genuine. There were genuinely a couple of surprises at the end of that. The re- the reveal of Money Penny I quite liked. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of the end of The Dark Knight Rises when you discover that Joseph Gordon Levitt is is Robin, um, which came out at a similar time. But then it almost resets it right back at the start because he goes into the old office and then Mallory becomes M and he's got Money Penny as the secretary. And it's like right, we're back where we started now. And I feel so that would have almost been if you were full to circle. Say- yeah, exactly. And I, f- I feel, let's say you'd got to that point and you just think, oh, I just want to rewatch the whole franchise. That bit made me just want to go right back to the beginning of the Connery era and start again. And I, as you say, I think it creates a lovely circular motion in the franchise. Yeah, I mean, you know, Casino Royale, I do think, is, is fantastic. Some really great sequences. I think maybe the house sinking at the end is maybe a little OTT, but again, it does have some surprise elements to it. And I just love the central card game. I think that is absolutely brilliant. It's so well handled. It's so well shot. It's Bond playing poker, which we've seen him do before. And there's genuine tension there. Uh, and it almost shouldn't work, but in what you, you know is a essentially action film in many respects. And it's quite low key and it takes up quite a big section of time, but it's it's just just brilliant. I absolutely love love that that idea around it and the idea of this terrorist playing um the stock market with his clients funds and if bond loses then that could mean that the british government has funded terrorism and then the reveal the little, little twist about felix lighter coming in as well which i thought was was terrific so it was a great reset um some good ideas in quantum of solace skyfall brilliant and then issues with spectra no time to die although i I did enjoy them all, I think, to a point, even Quantum of Solace. But in many respects, they kind of tried to trade out on the success of the Bourne franchise, which had become the new Bond, hadn't it, in that time? Yeah, it had. And it's interesting now that probably the Bourne films prompted the change in tone for Casino Royale, yet the Bourne, the Bourne films aren't really more than a footnote now, I would I would argue. Um, they're well-liked, but they're, they're certainly 
haven't risen in that kind of popularity that Bond has. Also, Phil, you complimented uh, Die Another Day of having that torture scene. There's also a very good torture scene in Casino Royale, which yeah. is also very good. You know, the way that's written in the book is very good. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, again, you've got these iconic moments. Um, a more gritty and more disturbing torture sequence than this perhaps the slightly fantastical one in die another day um which i can't believe you're accusing die another day of having no realism (laughs) i mean it's it's not a it's an interesting take on the title sequence i think uh um but it's also pushing the narrative forward in the title sequence isn't it whereas not all of them do that and also you're yeah you're watching bond get tortured which is a bit bit odd although it doesn't actually feel disturbing in the way it does in casino royale although just on something you mentioned earlier about madonna when one review i read bond spends the title sequence getting tortured he's had it easy we've got to listen to madonna's awful title song which i thought was <laughs> quite a good line a bit mean but quite a good line i mean where would you like to see bond go from here i mean is there anything else they can do they will reset there will be another bond film do you have any ideas or um, I, I think I agree with Matt. If it is to continue, it would be really fascinating to see it as a true period piece and not some sort of uncomfortable mesh between two eras. I'm I'm still very much, I wanted it to finish at Skyfall. I think Bond has had a great run. I, I, love, I love it mainly for nostalgia reasons and I love the direction of the earlier Craig films apart from Quantum. Well, two of the Craig films. <laughs> um, and I think it was the perfect note to finish on. I'm kind of good with that. I'm happy for it to be retired at that point, but it's going to carry on, isn't it? So I'm not going to get my wish. <laughs> yeah, I think a couple of just uh, maybe independent kind of just films that are independent of the franchise. So like I said, a period piece would be great. Um, but yeah, in terms of bringing in the next actor to play the next five, six films, I, 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 Casino Royale did something quite major with the, with the Bond franchise. And if you look at the pattern of Bond, it's that they go serious to humor, back to serious, back to humor. So we've just had serious. So maybe we're going to go back to humor. So maybe we're going to have another period of Pierce Brosnan. And like you say, kind of just those little in jokes and, um, and see where it goes yeah. from there. Well, yeah. what they did with what they did with Sherlock Holmes when um, they they had that one Sherlock Holmes film, didn't they? Where he was like retired, something like that. I would love to see Bond retired. I know it sounds silly because it goes against what Bond is, but just just seeing this character from different angles, I think we've never done that with this character. We might have in the novels. I've not read all of them, but um, I'm not sure that would work. I think I think Bond has to be this larger than life fantasist kind of well super spy figure and i think there is getting away from that makes it something very very different and it's it's about how you position that i think in 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 a case of interpretation so you're thinking bond going down the bingo hall playing bingo is not a uh a, a good way forward lost hands nearly killed me i've got a heart condition now yeah, I can. I can well, well believe Maybe that. you could have Bond with Bond training in a younger person. Exactly. Work. Yeah, that's yeah. a different angle. Yeah, yeah. But he's got knowledge. He's got experience. 
Who knows? People, have their own, people do have their own expectations of what they want from a Bond film. And you alluded yeah. to that, Dave, with No Time mm-hmm. to Die. You didn't want to see Bond doing, you know, being domestic. So would that work? I mean, yeah. And of course, I'm out, prejudiced but... by my experiences of Bond growing up and what I think Bond should be. But that's not, you know, as you've said, there's so many vagaries to the initial interpretation from Fleming's novels. Mm. We're again at a point, I think, is the overall point where we're we're looking to reevaluate that character again. Yeah, and it, it's going to be for the next generation. It's going to be introducing Bond to a new generation. So it's they're, they're probably not thinking about what we want, <laughs> you know, having mm. had Bond for this such a long period. Now they're thinking, well, we need to make sure that, you know, a new generation is being introduced to Bond, therefore... And, and do they Bond want Bond? Active. I mean, that'll be interesting. Do they really want him? Yeah, is he, will, he, will he be perceived to be a dinosaur by new audiences? Exactly. Interesting. Which Lazenby predicted in 69 and it didn't come true. So it's, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. We do like to end these podcasts with recommendations. We usually give three recommendations with the two hosts, but we've got three hosts this time. So we're each going to give you two recommendations of Bond films. Matt, what is your first? So I've gone with Goldfinger. Um, I think if you had to sum up Goldfinger in a word, it would be iconic. Um, you know, you, you think of Bond, you know, you ask anyone about Bond, they might think of an image from Goldfinger, like the um, the body covered in, in gold paint, um, the title sequence, the song. There's, there's a lot that Goldfinger offered the franchise and it, it's it's... For a lot of people, you know, when they think of Bond, they'll think of something that's connected to Goldfinger. And also, um, as I mentioned earlier, Goldfinger introduced certain conventions to the Bond uh, franchise. Uh, for example, the Aston Martin was the first time that you see that is in Goldfinger. Um, Q Branch, the first time you see uh, Q Branch is in Goldfinger, which, you know, again, these are iconic moments. Um, and there's just, just some great scenes, the golf match scene, fantastic. Um, as, you, as we've already discussed, the laser scene has got, you know, it's just the, the tension in that is great. And it's got one of the greatest lines of the franchise. Um, I expect you to die. It's fantastic. Um, and yeah, and that Fort Knox fight scene, is, you watch that now and it's in no way is that dated. It's just a great use of sound design. The shots are just well paced. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, there's some questionable moments, i.e. the barn scene, which we've discussed, and his his relationship with women in that film. Like there's there's one scene where he uses uh, a woman as a human shield, which is just, and that's in the opening, I think, from what I remember. Um, yeah, so you got moments like that, and also interestingly, there's a, there's a moment of uh, a, there's a pop culture reference where he criticizes the Beatles, which is a slightly kind of um, it's one of those moments in the Bond franchise where you kind of you step out of the world slightly because it's a pop culture reference um so the goldfinger has a lot to offer and it, it's one that as i get older it's definitely one that I've, I've grown more fond of i will just quickly recommend um diabolical which is another podcast where they look at the evil schemes of villains and try and better them and that's well worth listening to the first episode they did was goldeneye and one of the alternatives was to basically get um someone to convert to Scientology to give up all their gold, which was quite clever. So that's that's a really good podcast well worth listening. 
One thing I will also say, what I love about the laser sequence, which is a great contrast with what I mentioned about Austin Powers and Bond villains trying to kill Bond in the most ridiculously elaborate ways that never fail, always fail. With the laser sequence, there's genuinely no way out for it. And it's really nasty. You think of that, if he hadn't talked his way out of it, that would have been a really horrible, horrible death. Um, so I think that's a terrific moment early on before the sort of ways to assassinate Bond became even more ridiculous. But moving on, my first recommendation is Goldeneye, the first Bond that I saw at the cinema. It's got a terrific villain in Alec Trevelyan, a superb theme song by Tina Turner, written by Bono and the Edge. And I think it's the best of the Brosnan Bonds. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, it also introduced us to a couple of other recurring Bond characters, Jack Wade and Valentin Zukovsky. It felt like something of a cultural moment. And I think it did bridge that gap and kept the franchise going even though the, the films were laws of diminishing returns before the Craig era, and it spawned the brilliant video game that we have mentioned. There's some great set pieces throughout, um, and it was before the films became too self-aware before we moved back into the Craig era. It doesn't hold up quite as well. It does have the problem of being set after the Cold War, but still feeling as if the Cold War is going on. But I do think it is a really good bond, and it's got a bit of a personal place for me, so that's my first recommendation. Dave, you're first. Well, I've said um, I'm not overly convinced by the Daniel Craig era, but I do think it has probably the best Bond film ever made, and that's Casino Royale. I think it timed it very well to return to the source novels. It was great that they finally got the rights to do it. As I say, it would have been really interesting to see Timothy Dalton or Sean Connery do do this um, do this book, um, well, the film version of this book. Um, but what a job they've done of it. It's brilliantly directed by Martin Campbell, the you know the choreography like the the free running stunts the the central card game as you mentioned phil is absolutely superb it's so tense it's got that really i mean it's really horrific where he has the heart attack and he's being revived goes back in and makes the joke about that last hand nearly killed me it's it's um a great that's actually a really good example of when <clears throat> bond actually uses good timing with humor which doesn't always happen <laughs> Um, it's got a great soundtrack by Chris Cornell um, and it subtly updates Bond. You know, for example, there's no semi-naked girls on the title sequence and uh, on title credits. And um, there's a really welcome change there and strips back more toxic elements, um, but does preserve Bond as a misogynistic character, how he's written that literary character. Um, I just think it has everything that's good about bond in spades and i think that's why i've picked it he's called out for being a misogynistic character isn't he within the film so the film yeah that happens yeah it happens across a few of the craig films but yes he is yeah and i think we should just mention mads mickelson I mean, what an actor he is oh, yeah absolutely what a great bond villain and the reaction when he realizes bond hasn't been killed fantastic yeah, just very subtly but he's Oh, that's not worked. Um, you know, <laughs> terrific actor and a terrific performance. Absolutely. Um, Matt, your second recommendation. So if you'd have asked me 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have gone with this film. But as we've already discussed, it's a film that's been kind of given like a uh, almost like a second life. And I, I watched it about six years ago and I found myself really enjoying it. And that is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um 
yes, we've already commented on Lazenby. Yeah, it's not the best best Bond, but it just happens to be the film that is in is the most interesting. Um, that's quite an interesting dynamic for a fairly um, secure franchise. Like, like I say, with the, with the Roger Moore films, you can pretty much know what you're getting. With this one, it's just it shows the attempt at doing something a bit different. Um, and yeah, to you know, to, to kind of give him that moment of at the end, which really adds depth to his character, rather than him bedding someone. Um, I really appreciated that, considering as well at the period I watched this recently, I had kind of gone through all the bonds back to back, so in chronological order. So by the time I was watching this, it was actually quite refreshing to see him not bedding someone at the end, um, although it was quite a dark scene. Um, and the fact that it's been referenced heavily in No Time to Die just shows that it has kind of been given that second lease of life, which is, which is just that in itself is quite interesting as well. And also, I now consider it um, a Christmas film because I've recently watched it at Christmas and it fits. So I applaud it for that also. Excellent. My uh, second recommendation is Skyfall. As much as I love Casino Royale, which we've discussed, I opted for this for a few reasons. I think it manages to be self-referential in a way that doesn't wink at the audiences whilst subtly acknowledging how in the modern world enemies are not necessarily countries, but they can be faceless organisations. The climactic scene contains surprises. There's a twist on the traditional Bond girl and a villain who ultimately gets what he's after. I remember when I went to see it with my wife and we got home and my mum had been babysitting and she said, oh, so did, did Bond get the girl and save the day? And I thought, well, no, he didn't. He didn't do either of those things, which I thought was quite an interesting take. I mean, he doesn't actually see the result of what he wants, but Silver's quite happy to die and he just wants M to die. And that does happen. Um, there's also Albert Finney, um, smart introduction of Money Penny that we've alluded to. And I do think this and Casino Royale are amongst the very best, certainly as films, um, as Bond films, you could maybe argue the case with other points, but I think as in terms of narrative and performance and obviously Roger Deakins filming this one, they are the best films, if you see what I'm saying in that regard. Uh, the other three films, Stein Craig, I do have issues with, um, we've discussed. I do like them, um, but I do think Skyfall, which is now over 10 years old, it really does stand up exceptionally well, and that's the true test of it. I mean, everyone was saying how brilliant it was when it came out, but you watch it again now and you think, no, that is a really, really good film, even knowing the surprising plot elements. Uh, and we also mentioned about villains being held back. You don't see Silver until over halfway through. And then he has that terrific introduction with that really long shot when he walks into the dilapidated warehouse on his private island. Uh, and self-referential nods as well in terms of Bond saying, it's called a radio, latest thing from Q Branch. Um, which is terrific and it i don't think it's intentional but it's almost sticking two fingers up to some of the gadgets that they had in the the brosnan bonds so my second final recommendation is skyfall dave to bring it to a close what's your second and final recommendation of a bond film so i'm just going to go totally with nostalgia well not not totally i i do think live and let die is well, I think it's Roger Moore's best outing as Bond is first, and I think it's full of energy. I think it's got this really great, unique... I love the voodoo atmosphere of it. I think it's really unique to Bond, and 
uh, brings in a lot of black exploitation film era influences in, which I find really, uh, really works. Um, it's certainly my most fondly remembered Bond from my teen years. I, I've mentioned it's it's got the best soundtrack of any. Absolutely thumps along. Um, I think Roger Moore in this film does find a really good balance between humour and toughness um, out of all of his turns of Bond. Um, it's exciting. Um, you know, you, I, I think you've got Jane Seymour and a subtly complex villain in Yafet Koto. You've got crocodiles. Yeah, there's a couple of scenes like you you have the Clifton James's terrible JD JW Pepper. I can't believe he was in one Bond film, never mind two. Um, and you've got a rather a uh, I don't know, questionable, unsettling scene about how Bond rigs a card deck so Solitaire ends up losing her virginity. But um there is a lot of really good qualities as an adventure film as an action film in this and it's i guess it's a bit of a stirring boy's own adventure at heart next up is episode eight what could we be discussing or will be revealed thanks for listening and take care Sounds interesting. Mmm. What is it? An omelette. <laughs> ah, you were telling me about your grandfather.